As Lindsay mentioned, I want to be sharing with you from Psalm 1. Now, I was thinking about Psalm 1, I was struck by something that I've noticed in some of the classes I've taught over at Thales. You know, Thales is just kind of in, almost in y'all's backyard. I teach English and literature classes over there to middle and high schoolers. And one of the things that a lot of different books and people over the ages seem to, be, ha- seem to have in common is a search for the good life. You know, Socrates irritated the Athenians so much they made him drink poison because he kept asking them, well, what is a good life? People in Europe want to know what a good life is. People in America want to know what a good life is. But everybody has different answers to what it is that makes something a good life. I was thinking through trying to come up with a good example of that, and I remembered a gentleman a few years back named Bernie Madoff. Now, Bernie Madoff had a great idea. He, had a big, he has a big family, and he wanted to make sure his family had everything they ever wanted. And he structured his business so that he received a very large income. And he was able then to provide his family with all kinds of clothes and housing and vehicles, European vacations, everything they could possibly dream of. And yet, eventually it all crumbled because Bernie Madoff structured his business on what's called a Ponzi scheme, which scammed thousands of people out of their retirement. He thought he had the good life. He was wrong. Now, Charles Dickens tried to investigate this question of a good life in his novel, uh, David Copperfield. And in there, he looks. there's two different characters that each of them tries to find a good life. And one of them is a guy named James Steerforth. Steerforth is a young, strapping young man. He's a son of a noble family. He's got all the economic opportunity and education. His mother wants him to go be a lord in parliament and someday be the great statesman of England. Steerforth, though, has a different idea. He thinks that the good life is pleasure. Drink, women, adventure, that's the good life. And he's going to go live it to the full. And he tries to, and eventually he sees a beautiful girl. Her name is Emily. And he talks to Emily, and he convinces Emily to run away with him on a fabulous adventure. And they'll go see all the sights there are to see in Europe. Emily goes with him, but eventually for Steerforth, things don't work out very well. His pleasure-seeking eventually ends, ends with him breaking up with Emily, and ultimately he dies in a shipwreck. But if that's Steerforth on one hand, Dickens goes in a different direction with a guy named Mr. Peggotty. Now, Mr. Peggotty is not somebody you would peg for the guy who's going to find the answer to what is the good life. He's a fisherman off the coast of Yarmouth. He's not that well off. He's pretty much lower to middle class, And his sole ambition in life is to take care of his family and have just enough money so that he can be generous with those in need. And he adopts a young girl whose parents had died, and her name is Emily. It's the same Emily that runs away with Steerforth. And eventually, Mr. Peggotty has to make a choice. When he finds out that Emily has run away, he's faced with a crisis. What does he do? Well, for him, it's no real choice because his goal is to care for Emily. He gives his business away, he tells his son to take care of the family, and he embarks on a 15-year journey to find his lost niece. And he goes and he spends the rest of his days roaming through the cities and towns and countryside of Europe seeking Emily. And eventually he finds her, but he discovers that because of the way she's lived her life, she can never go home. So does he abandon her and go live his own life? No. He takes her and the rest of the family, and they go, and they start a new life together in Australia, where everything is new. 
by the very end of the novel, it turns out that Mr. Peggotty has actually found the key to the most fulfilling life. It wasn't in pleasure. It wasn't in riches. It was actually in sacrificing for someone else. It was in something more than just finding his own source of pleasure. And our text today is going to examine the same question. You know, the ancient Hebrews, just like us today, were trying to figure out how do we have a great life? And the psalmist who wrote Psalm 1 is trying to answer that question. So today we're going to look at Psalm 1 and we're going to see two different paths that our lives could take. And then we're going to see two different images of what the, where that sort of life will lead. And finally, by the end, we'll take a look at the two different judgments for this life. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar where to find the book of Psalms, just open your Bible up to the very middle, and you should probably land in the book of Psalms, and then just flip back till you get to Psalm 1. You know, the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 sacred poems from ancient Hebrew worship, and that makes Psalm 1 particularly special. Because this is the psalm that opens up the entire book. It's called the Gatekeeper Psalm, and it sets the ground for what we should expect of the rest of the 149 psalms afterwards. So this is going to establish what is the whole book about. How do people relate to God? How does God relate to us? How do we find hope in this world? All of that is packed in Psalm 1. It's going to be expanded throughout the rest of the book. So read with me in Psalm chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your graciousness to us, your mercy. We thank you for your kindness in giving us your word. I pray that today my words would only explain yours and that we would seek together to apply your words to our lives. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. This psalm is a beautiful poem, and it's already broken down for us in three clear sections. Uh, I'm reading in the ESV, and it breaks those up into three chunks in the text itself. So I'm going to consider these in three, those same three sections. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, we find these two different paths that life might take. The psalmist tells us that there really are two options, and uh, I want to begin with the negative option first. Because the psalmist begins describing, blessed is the man who does not. And he really gives us that negative picture first and then goes on to the positive picture beginning in verse 2. So he tells us, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Who does not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now this is, the psalmist kind of uses a poetic device to draw our attention to a figure. We, should, we can imagine a person who's, seeking, who's walking through these steps. This is the man who is going to be on the wicked path, and he, might begin, he begins seeking the counsel of the wicked. I'm envisioning a young man on the cusp of life trying to make some major decisions. 
And he goes for advice. But the place he goes to advise is to the wicked. He goes and asks the people who are already engaging in sin and the things that God hates, and he asks them for their advice. I envision a council chamber where a figure is standing in the center and different voices arise from the congregation to give him advice. Perhaps one stands and says, you are the most important person in the universe. Do everything that will make you have more success urging pride and selfish ambition. Or perhaps on the other side, someone stands and says, money is the most important thing. If you get all the money in the world you can, then you'll be happy and content, urging greed and pride. Perhaps someone stands from the center and says, take whatever your heart most desires. When you see beauty, grab it and possess it, urging lust. So the young man takes the, gets his counsel from the wicked. But the psalmist doesn't stop here. He goes on. This young man has now gotten his counsel, and he begins walking. He begins walking in the way of sinners. This idea of the way is not just a steady spot, but it's a path. It's an ongoing place. He's moving in this action. So he's gotten his counsel, and now he is acting on the counsel. He begins acting with greed, motivated by greed, by pride, by selfish ambition. He begins acting with all of these different vices, and he's moving along that way. Then eventually, though, as he continues walking in this way, he gets to the place where he sits in the seat of the scoffer. As he sits, he surveys the way around him, and he sees off in the distance another path, perhaps the path of righteousness. And there's someone else who has made different choices, and his response is to scoff. To mock the man who valued love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the virtues of the Holy Spirit commended to us in the New Testament. His response at seeing this other path is simply to scoff at them. This is the path of the wicked. It begins in wicked counsel, proceeds on to wicked actions, and then concludes in sitting and simply mocking the man who pursues righteousness. So the psalmist gives us this as the first possibility of where our life could go. But then he gives us hope in a second option. This is not the only path. As we go back to the beginning of verse 1, he tells us, Blessed is the man, and then he describes that man in verse 2. So blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So blessed is the man who walks this different path. And this path doesn't begin in selfish ambition or pride or sinful counsel. This path begins with the very word of God itself. This path begins in looking to scripture and seeing what has the God of the universe, the creator of everything there is, told me about my life, the world, how I ought to live, how I should relate to other people, how I please God. All these questions have answers found in the very word of God. This path begins in submitting to God's counsel and then seeking to live in light of it. Now you'll notice that it doesn't actually say the Bible here. It says the law of the Lord. The poet is using a synonym here. He's using a phrase, the law of the Lord, in place of the whole word of God. He doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments or the Levitical codes in the the beginning of the Bible. He means the whole counsel of Scripture. This is the foundation 
for our lives as followers of Christ. Which leads us then to a question. Do you delight in Scripture? Do you delight in the Word of God? Does studying it, reading it, thinking upon it, does that bring you joy? Is it exciting to you to think, these are words that God himself has spoken through different people in different times and places to me, to the church throughout all the ages, and this is the very word of God to you. That should bring us profound joy. It gives us a rock to stand on. Now, the psalmist doesn't stop here, though. He then <coughs> goes on to consider two different images. So now that he's given us these pictures of two paths, one, the path of righteousness, the other, the path of wickedness. He goes on in verses three and four to describe, to give us two different images that tell us what, are these, what does this life look like? So read with me in verse three. Continuing describing the path of the righteous, the psalmist writes, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Here we see very clear pictures of these two lives contrasted with one another. The first is continuing with the path of the righteous. Well, the righteous is compared to a tree planted directly by a stream of water. This tree is able to sink roots deep into the earth, drawing its nourishment. It can do that because the water is giving it constant growth. It, isn't, it doesn't submit to drought or famine or, wind or different weather conditions. It's got that deep-seated, that deep-rooted nature as a tree. It's grown, it's flourished, and as we see it goes on, it, it yields its fruit in its season. So if the tree is the man of righteousness who has based his life on the word of God, the stream then is that very word of God itself. So if we are committed to following Christ then we are compared to this tree that draws our nourishment from the very word of God. As you can see here, that gives us a stability. The tree doesn't, isn't knocked about by the slightest gust of wind. Different circumstances can change and the tree continues to grow. The tree remains steady. It remains firm, regardless of how the world around it changes because it has this stream that gives it constant nourishment. But then the tree doesn't just stay as the tree. The tree yields fruit. That's what healthy plants do. This is springtime. We've all felt the effects of the pollen in the air as healthy plants are, are reproducing. Healthy plants yield much fruit. Well, this tree planted by the stream is going to then in turn yield much fruit. Well, what then does that mean for us? If we are growing on the word of God, if we are constantly meditating on scripture and growing, sinking deep roots into the truths of God's word, then we should then be reproducing the word of God itself. At time when you're talking with a grieving neighbor whose relative has just, who has just died and you share the counsel of God with them, or a roommate who is confused, who's been faced with different voices in his life telling him different things he ought to do, and you share with him the word of God. Or a friend at school who's trying to decide how on earth do I survive in the midst of school and work and family and it's just producing all kinds of anxiety. And you respond with the word of God. That is you reproducing this lively fruit that will bear fruit of its own in good season. Because God tells us that the word of God never goes forth void. 
When we give forth God's word to other people, it allows the word of God to sink into them. We may never see that fruit, but God himself has assured us that it will bear fruit in their lives. So if we are this tree with roots sunk deep into the word of God, it gives us the ability then to spread God's word to others. Now I do want to briefly mention also uh, the next two phrases. The leaf, and its leaf does not wither. And we're not a weak people. If we are growing on the word of God, we're a strong, thriving people. We're not this weak, withered tree that's ready to die and maybe rotten from the core. Instead, we're a live, growing people, strong in what God has given us. The next phrase says that in all that he does, he prospers. And this is a little bit of a tricky word, this idea of prospering. Because I want to make sure we rightly understand what the Bible means by prosper. Because it's very easy to read this and then take away from this that whatever I do, God will prosper me materially. Now, my wife and I live in a two-bedroom apartment in seminary housing, and we hope one day to have a house. It'd be nice to have a bigger place than we do now. And maybe someday we'll have many kids and we'll have a much bigger house. And that's kind of my, min- my initial assumption for prosperity. A bigger house, a nicer car, maybe more cars than we have, Bigger family, more physical stuff. That's not what scripture means when it talks about prosperity. When the Bible mentions prosperity, it's primarily emphasizing a spiritual prosperity. Because the rootedness of this tree, that, not, that means that it doesn't, isn't swayed by external circumstances, is knowledge of God and his truth. This prosperity means that you are certain no matter what circumstances come. Death, famine, plague, war, invasion, rumors of war. Regardless of all these things, you have a spiritual prosperity guaranteed in the blood of Christ himself. And it's this prosperity that the psalmist is referring to when he says, in all that he does, he prospers. But let's consider the wicked then, because that's the righteous man, this righteous path. And let's consider the other side. What, what then of the wicked? The psalmist tells us in verse 4, The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now I find that when I'm teaching middle schoolers and high schoolers, that sometimes we run across agricultural farm metaphors that they just don't understand because they've grown up in the city. And this is one of those, the idea of chaff. Chaff is referring to part of wheat, and the way you get chaff is this. Each year, the farmer plants his seeds, and when harvest time comes, he gathers in the wheat, and all the wheat is placed on the threshing floor. And there are people whose job it is to take big sticks or clubs and beat the wheat. And the wheat is contained in tiny grains that are then in the husk of the wheat, and then the grains are beaten out. And they're gathered, and that's what's turned into flour when we get bread. The stuff that's left is worthless. It's called chaff. That's the stem, that's the husk of the wheat itself. And it, is, it has no weight, it has no substance. It can simply be blown away by a gust of wind. This is what the psalmist says the wicked are like. Now the righteous man is like a tree, sturdy, hefty. The wicked man is like chaff, blown about by a gust of wind. Now he has no substance to his life, there's no permanence to his life, he is simply malleable, and goes wherever the wind goes. Sometimes, though, people's lives don't look like that. I think there are sometimes I can think of, I can think of people 
who live, I know they live very immoral lives, but on the outside, it looks like they have it all together. Marriage, house, family, position, wealth, they've got it all. And it looks like this verse isn't true. But we know God's word is true, and eventually, the truth of their life, whether they are following this righteous path or a sinful path, will come out. It reminds me of the story of Tiger Woods. You know, when I was a child, Tiger Woods was a constant reference for preachers and for leadership speakers and influent and anyone giving a talk that involved a mo- kind of a motivational speech sort of idea. Tiger Woods was always a great example of someone who was excellent. He practiced for years. He had great success. He was a synonym for excellence in golf. But then about four or five years ago, I was at my grandparents' house for a holiday weekend, and we woke up, and there was a picture on all the news stations. And some of you may remember this. It was a picture of Tiger Woods' wife chasing him out of the house with a golf club and beating her husband with a golf club. Because the night before, she had learned that their entire life was a lie. On the surface, it looked like Tiger Woods had it all. He had success um, on the golf course, and he had success in the home. He had the house, he had the wife, he had the marriage. But it turns out that Tiger Woods was a cheater. He had cheated on his wife many times over the years. And all of the things that looked steady and permanent about his life were simply this chaff that was blown away by the wind of truth that came and swept away the lies he had been telling his wife for years. No, really, we live, when we live a righteous life according to the words of God, it gives our lives a permanence because we are living in accordance with the words of God himself. When we ignore the commandments of God, our lives are changeable and they become worthless, just chaff blown in the wind. Now, the psalmist goes on to his third section, and here he looks at the end, the judgment of both of these lives. We've seen the path of the righteous and the permanence of the righteous. We've seen the path of the wicked and the changeability of the wicked. Now we need to consider the judgment. The psalmist writes in verse 5, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist is reminding us of something that is uncomfortable to think about. One day... Every human being who has ever existed, you, me, people 3,000 years ago, people 100 years in the future, will stand in front of God, and he will look at every moment of our lives. He'll see every part of your life. He'll see those thoughts I don't want him to see. He'll see those conversations that were not God-honoring. He'll see the movies I watch, the books I read, websites I visit. He'll see it all. And in that moment, God will make his judgment. Do you stand in the congregation of the righteous? Or do you perish with the wicked? Two paths, two judgments. The psalmist doesn't leave us any option for saying both. I find that a very sobering thought because I stand condemned by that. There are times in my life where I have sought the counsel of the wicked. I've walked in the way of the sinner. I've then even gotten to the other end. I've sat in the seat of the scoffer, and I have mocked people who made better choices than I did, people who followed God's law. So alone in myself, I stand convicted by this text. 
man, I contend, none of us stand any better on our own merit. On our own merit, we all have sinned and we've fallen short of what God has demanded of us. We all stand convicted, except the mercy of God. The mercy of God shines forth through this text because God is merciful. And this is our hope. Yes, God is merciful. God did not wait for us to do the impossible. He didn't wait for us to somehow figure out how do I live this perfect life and walk this path of righteousness without ever deviating to the right or to the left? He didn't wait until we had somehow done what is incapable for us to do. No, while we are still sinners, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf and resurrect from the dead three days later, offering us hope from this judgment. Because as we see from this text, God is righteous. God demands a payment for the evil things that you've done, that I've done, that we've all done. We stand condemned. But God, instead of condemning us, sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross 2,000 years ago. That changes the game. Because now, when God looks at us, if we then look to Christ, and if we plead for the mercy of Christ upon us, It changes how God sees us. Instead of looking at me and seeing a man filled with sin, if I look to Christ first, God then looks at me and he sees on me the blood of his son, which pays for all the sin I have ever done. Instead of seeing someone who owes him an enormous debt for all the sin he's done, God sees a man whose debt has paid in full by someone else. This is the mercy of God. God has paid our penalty of sin in Christ. So because of Christ, we can move from the path of the sinner to the path of the righteous. It's not anything we do. We and ourselves are not capable of living this righteous life that God demands. But if we appeal to the mercies of Christ, God changes our status. He moves us from one path to the other. So the psalmist, by the end of this, he draws our mind to this fact that we have to make a choice. It reminds me of a famous poem by Robert Frost. He wrote, Two woods in a yellow woods diverged. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. There's two paths. There's the path of the wicked, the path of the righteous. We're all on this path of the wicked, going our own way, astray from the will of God. But through Christ, God can put us on the path of righteousness, where we live a life pleasing to him. So today, I ask you to consider yourself. Do you know Christ? Are you on this path of righteousness by his blood's sake? If you are, join me in praising God for his mercy. If you are not, and I urge you, come talk to me after service, talk to Lindsay, talk to any of the members here, We want to help you know how you can be on this path of righteousness, pleasing to God, so that that, when that day comes, when we reach that day of judgment, that we have Christ as our advocate. So Psalm 1 really reminds us a lot about life, that there are two ways to living, and that our one hope of living the good life is not found in the counsel of the wicked, or the way of the sinners, or the seat of the scoffer. But our hope for living the good life is found in basing our life on the very words of God himself. Let's pray.
Father, we stand in awe of you. We stand in awe of your word, of the sacrifice which you gave for our redemption. I pray that your words would sink deep into our hearts and that we would honor you in all that we say and do today. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen.